Hello, welcome to another episode of Chats with Chelsea. This is a special edition for Father's Day. Yes, it's Father's Day. So to all of you all who are listening, make sure you've called your father and say, Happy Father's Day. We have a father with us. He is a father of four, an author, um, best-selling Amazon author, to you know, be correct. Last time I checked, number one in Christian institution organizations. He's the pastor in North Carolina, brother in Christ, a friend that I've known for over 15 years. Dr. Briscoe, welcome to Chats with Chelsea. Thank you for having me. I am so thrilled that you've joined. Um, you know, many of my followers may be wondering, people in the Chats with Chelsea community, Briscoe, Briscoe, that sounds familiar. And it does, because a few weeks ago, his wife, Tracy Briscoe, was on the show to talk about white privilege. So let's dive into um, that topic a little bit, uh, Darrell, Dr. Briscoe. Um, I gotta get used to that, Dr. Briscoe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Trace talked about white privilege. When you heard her interview, what did you think, Darrell? I thought it was bold because that term, it triggers a lot of white people. Uh, so for her to wade into those waters with conviction, um, with a certainty, a certainty to her, um, and to back it up with lived experience, um, I thought that that was pretty special. And so I appreciated her boldness in that regard. It's not easy to talk about that. Tell us what the conversations have been like in the Briscoe household. Since that video? Since Ahmaud Aubrey. Let's let's go to Ahmaud yeah. Aubrey. Yeah. You know, I, I would I would say that it, it would it's it's been uh, kind of the here we go again wow. type of attitude. Um we've been through this before. We've been through this before in the context of serving as a black pastor in a white evangelical space, uh, which is not easy. There's a lot of things that you have to navigate. It's different now, at least the conversations we're having in our household uh, currently, because we are now leading our own church that is uh, very outspoken and vocal in matters of justice. Like we don't even, we don't, we're not even trying to like hide it. Like. We are the 6-8 church. That is from Micah 6-8. What does God want of you but to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with your God? And so uh, we there's a um, boldness, there's a conviction and a holy fire in us now when we're discussing things, uh, uh, when we're discussing the tragedy of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and the subsequent protests that have um, erupted in the streets of 400 cities and over 19 countries. And so uh, it, it, now when we're talking about it, we're like, okay, we're actually on the front lines now. We've been doing the work and, 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 and we are now uh, talking, talking, at it, talking about it with a different vantage point as opposed to four years ago. And we'll talk about more of this when we talk about the book, but when I wrote my book, it was part of my doctoral thesis at Duke, which I started nearly four years ago. And I was in a very different place then, obviously, again, serving as a black pastor in a white evangelical space. So with these conversations that you all are having and you're sharing, you share that um, you all have been doing the work. 
what work have you and Tracy, um, and for any of anyone who missed that episode, you're, you were married to a beautiful white woman, woman filled with the Holy Spirit that I love to watch and see her uh, serve alongside of you. But what have you all been doing? Absolutely. You know, we started the church nearly a year ago, and we have made it a point to educate our congregation on systemic racism, on corporate and communal, communal sin, and the ramifications of that. Um, and we have been actively um, working for justice, specifically in our affordable housing and criminal justice areas in our city, in Durham, North Carolina. We do that by several events um, that we do, programs that we do throughout the calendar year. One is called Letter Writing to the Incarcerated, where we screen a documentary that talks about criminal justice reform. And then we write letters to people who are locked up and who are incarcerated in Durham County Jail. We do something called uh, The Shop, which is basically an where we meet in a Black-owned barber shop, and we specifically talk about justice issues. We provide, <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> we provide a safe space for all people to come, talk about, uh, uh, discuss issues, hot topic issues that are going on in our society. We've talked about reparations. We talked about the death of Kobe Bryant. We've talked about the police killings of unarmed black men and women. So we do that several times. We also do something called readings on race, uh, where we read books once a quarter from women of uh, women or authors of color only. And we, we read these books, we discuss these books, and then finally we, we show up to city council meetings and other meetings that are going on throughout our city uh, where we can hold the power uh, full to account, uh, where we can um, speak truth to them, where we can monitor how their programs and policies and how those policies affect and treat the least of these in our city. Um, and so uh, it's primarily been a lot of awareness and education, but I'm encouraged. I mean, we, we just started meeting uh, as a church in January, at least weekly in J this past January. Obviously, we've been uh, forced to meet online, do things online because of COVID-19. But, but I'm encouraged about the inroads that we built in the community and kind of the advocacy that we're, we're slowly starting to work with now. Here's my last question on your home life, possibly, at least in this section of the interview. Darrell, you are a black pastor married to a white woman. You share that you've had some situations, which I definitely look forward to diving into when you were at a majority white evangelical church. But what has, what has this all meant for you in your marriage, your interracial biracial marriage, and the fact that you have four biracial kids? I think it means that we're trying to build a better America for our biracial children. Um, we want to be able to tell them 20, 30 years from now that mommy and daddy marched, that mommy and daddy spoke out, that mommy and daddy refused to accept the status quo. And so we're doing the work we're taking the hits and the licks hmm. um, and the sacrifice, but we're proud of it and we're encouraged and we're fully in the fight because 
we want our little Meemaw, our little Ella, our Luke and our Noah, we want them to grow up in a world that is more just and fair um, to black lives, to black bodies, to black thought, to black culture. And so um, there's a sense of urgency and a sh just a deep conviction that we have about this. You just can't convince us um, uh, otherwise. We are solely sold out um, for, uh, in, uh, for this fight and, and we're gonna continue to fight because we wanna fight for the future of our children. Well, thank you for the work that you all continue to do and have been doing behind the scenes and as you alluded to earlier, now on the front lines. And so definitely we'll be keeping you all in prayer as you all continue to serve and do what most importantly, do what God has called you to. So you you went to do for your doctoral program. You wrote this book four years ago. Tell us wh why you chose this topic for your thesis. Ah, thank you. I was sitting in class one day. Um, it was the last semester of my program at Duke. And so we were talking about the doctoral thesis, what we're going to write about. And I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Something in regards to leadership and racial reconciliation, but it was not, um, it, it was not narrow. Uh, it was a very broad, general kind of concept. I started to think honestly about my time in government where i worked in public policy so a bit about me before i was i've been in ministry for about 10 years but before that for about six years i was in government working in local and state governments across uh louisiana and texas and and a little bit in in, in florida and so i started to think about my time in texas and louisiana where i worked specific, uh, in the fields of climate change excuse me adaptation and natural disaster mitigation. My uh, master's thesis was all about helping coastal communities on, along the Gulf Coast prepare for and better respond to the next hurricane. I was inspired to go into government from Hurricane Katrina. And so I you know, pursued my master's in public administration at, at Texas A&M and then moved to Louisiana to help out in recovery, to work in economic development. So I started thinking about those days and I started to see similarities and parallels between climate change hmm. and the change that was occurring in our socio-political climate. I realized that with the last 10, 15 years, major shifts have occurred across our cultural landscape here in America. And I lay those out in chapter one of my book when I, uh, entitled Social Political Climate Change, but I, I talk about the rise of Black Lives Matter, the presidency of Barack Obama, uh, the rise of the alt-right, <clears throat> Census Bureau projections that are showing major demographic shifts that are going to occur over the next 20 to 30 years. These, I started to see these factors and these elements, and I was like, my goodness, there's a lot of things that have happened in the last 10, 15 years. And I started to see a correlation between those factors and these racial storms, if you will, that were occurring that were hitting our cultural uh, 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 landscape in America. I'm talking about the Mike Browns. I'm talking about the Flando Castiles. I'm talking about the Alton Sterlings. We know that we have always been in a racialized crisis in this country. Let's be clear, right? We have always been in crisis mode. However, 
because of digital interconnection, because of, uh, the, of our, of our first, uh, the first black president, because of the political ascent of Donald Trump, who has uh, made no issue regarding playing up to his base and choosing to divide, um, we're living in a different era. And I believe that era is fueling these racial crises that we're experiencing. And so I started to write about that and I drew parallels between climate change adaptation and what we're experiencing now in, 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 our, in our cultural climate. And I started to work on it in the midst of Charlottesville. Actually, I would say the, the impetus came from the summer of 2016 with the death of Lando Castile and Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, which is very personal to me because he was killed in the neighborhood where I used to work wow. in government. And so it, I took it very personally. Mm. Um, but that and then Charlottesville, uh, a couple months after that, I realized we are living in some really interesting times. And so that's basically the genesis behind the project. And so the book is called, There's a Storm Coming, How the American Church Can Lead Through Times of Racial Crisis. So you've talked about the parallels of the racial crisis and that what you were doing regarding your policy work um, with climate change. Why is it that you believe the American church has a role during this time? I believe that the church has enormous power and has an incredible opportunity to mobilize people to work for justice. The influence, the resources, the personnel, the power that they have is immense. Particularly our white brothers and sisters uh, that are clergy that lead their own congregations. They wield enormous power. And so I see and I believe that the church should be salt and light. The church should be leading on this issue. And I wrote the book because too often the church, particularly the white American church, is behind. Uh, it's caught flat-footed, it's silent or indifferent in matters concerning systemic injustice and racism. And so I realized, I'm like, you know what? It's time to step up, it's time to lead. We have to realize that there's a storm coming. In fact, it's already here. <laughs> so we need to get to work and begin to mobilize resources and people and inspire our congregation to work for the justice of black people in this country. This is a biblical issue, right? I mean, I use a lot of policy and some scientific terms, but you also see in the book a lot of the scriptural narrative uh, that points to the need to be prepared um, and also the need to work for justice of, 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 of black people. So I am looking forward to reading your book um, and receiving my signed copy. I filled yes. out my form. <laughs> Tell us what you see. Um, you know, you you share the issues that tend to um, permeate the white evangelical church. But what are the solutions? What is the role for our white brothers and sisters during this time? Yeah, great question. I lay out a framework in the book. It's called the racial crisis framework. And there's four R's. I mean, maybe that's the preacher in me coming out. You gotta make, I gotta make sure it's easy to remember. Here's your four P's or your eight, you know, your eight T's, you know. <laughs> so that's the, I, I will always 
be faithful to my first job and my first love, which is a preacher. I'm a preacher by heart, and, but, uh, but it's four hours. Uh, realization, readiness, responsiveness, renewal. It's cyclical, but it starts with realization. White American churches, white clergy need to educate themselves. They need to realize that we got an issue. They need to realize that the climate is changing, that storms are coming. And they need to realize and educate themselves uh, in five main areas. The first is uh, concerning a theological and biblical case for justice. Many people think, uh, and, and, I, and I don't know if you've heard this, I've heard it plenty of times, Throw just stick to the gospel. Just, just, just it's all about Jesus. Let, stop talking about all this race stuff. Come on. <laughs> you got to stop all that. It's all about the Bible, you know? <laughs> and I'm looking, I'm like, well, you know, the Bible has over 2,000 verses when it comes to justice and poverty. Wow. The Bible has a lot to say about it. In fact, Jesus, and, 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 and I, 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 I talk about this all the time because people say, we just got, we just got to talk, talk about Jesus. And I'm like, well, which Jesus are you talking about? Uh, are we talking about the white skin, blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus with the ultra perm who's looking at us, you know, like someone just stepped on his pet gerbil? Or are we talking about the brown skin, Afro Asiatic Palestinian Jew who lived in the first century under the brutality of Roman occupation and subjugation, who had a cousin, and I said cousin, who was killed by state sanctioned violence, John the Baptist, beheaded by the powers that be. Jesus identifies with the need for justice. Mm -hmm. Jesus is all about justice. So we have to educate ourselves on the theological and biblical case for justice. Next, we need to educate uh, ourselves on uh, America's historical record on race. We have to educate ourselves on present day systemic inequalities and systemic racism. We have to educate ourselves on the lived experience of black people. Uh, Allie Haney, I love Allie Haney. She's one of my favorite public theologians, brilliant black woman. Uh, love being mentored and learning from black women. Uh, so I want to say thank you so much for having me because I'm all about amplifying the voices of black women. We, we, we need y'all just to lead. I'm a, like, I should be interviewing you. Like, I'm like, what do we need? You know what I'm saying? Cause I'm just keeping it real. Uh, but Allie Haney says, um, <laughs> she said, uh, last year, y'all talking to white people, y'all trust Trump, but you need three doctoral dissertations. 18 angelic visits, five sermons, the ghost of Harriet Tubman, <laughs> and a signed affidavit by the blood of slaves to believe us when we say that racism is real. It, we, folks have got to educate themselves on the lived experience of black people in this country. And then finally, uh, the ideology of whiteness. We got to talk about white privilege, which I think Tracy did a great job uh, uh, talking about that. But we got to talk about white supremacy and, and, and these things. And uh, and so it starts with realization. And then as you realize things, you get ready. You start to move beyond cheap diversity into radical inclusion in your context. You start to collaborate with existing community stakeholders. You start to become mentored and mentored and being in, 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 in forming partnership with black churches that have been doing the work for decades, that have been saying and shouting this stuff for decades. You get ready. And as you get ready, you will be more informed and in a better position to respond and lead when the crisis hits. Because there's going to be another one. 
There's going to be another storm. But if we can get our white brothers and sisters engaged in true allyship, responding boldly with moral clarity and decisiveness and conviction, we can mobilize people like never born. We're seeing it now. We're seeing it now. I've never seen such a, such a groundswell of support among white people, uh, white people who traditionally were, were indifferent or ignorant regarding these issues. And then finally, renewal. You know, when you're in public policy, particularly the field of natural disaster mitigation, you realize that you can't just bounce back, you gotta bounce forward. Hmm. What can we learn from these events about hmm. ourselves, about our organization, about our communities? And how can we harness their energy for greater systemic change? That's what it's basically about. Well, I'm looking forward to diving more into the book, learning, hearing. Thank you for sharing um, what our white brothers and sisters can be doing. Here's the other question. What should we be doing? The black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ during this time. I know it's a time of healing. Um, it's it's a time of learning as well for many, but what what is what do you see as the role of black and brown members of the body of Christ during this time? Number one, we gotta take care of each other. Mm. Self-care is real. We have got to keep each other accountable to take care of ourselves. That's good. We gotta check on each other. We gotta pray for each other. We gotta speak the word of God over each other. We gotta pray for our children. We gotta invite each other into our homes and be like, you good sis? You good bro? Because we know we're having conversations. We know we're having to talk about these issues with colleagues, our white friends, which can be exhausting, which can be tiring. I'm reminded of what Fannie Lou Hamer said in 1968, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. So we gotta care for each other because I talk about this in the book. I talk about the great physiological and psychological distress that these crises have on black people because it's not just this individual isolated event right it's an event that's compounded by historical trauma which we embody we are we have this collectivity to us that is so unique so yes we need to check in on each other we need to maintain our hope my sister Keandra Ewing always talks about that and always challenges me to hold on to hope because I can grow pessimistic. I can grow cynical. I can be like, man, something because I, I'm a student of history. That's my first love. And so I know history really well. And I realize, man, this has been a long fight. Mm -hmm. This ain't going to change in my lifetime. So I can slip into some cynicism there, but we got to maintain our hope. We gotta, we've got to, uh, we have to do that. And then we finally, I think we just have to continue to, it's like, it's like that song, Jesus on the main line, tell him what you want, you know? <laughs> we, we gotta call him up and tell him what you want. We, 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 we have got to tap into the Holy Spirit. Uh, Andrew Young, former mayor of Atlanta, ambassador of the United Nations, walked, uh, marched with King, a very close friend of Dr. King, said at a prayer breakfast in Jacksonville almost 10 years, uh, several years ago. He was talking about Martin Luther King during his uh, day. And he said he was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit. We got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
we got to we got to stay connected to Jesus on the main line. That is critical for us. Again, we've been doing the work. We've been having the conversation, but we got to take care of ourselves. It's very important. Well, I agree. And it is something that I think that too often, especially the black community, we have been we have neglected taking care of ourselves. We've neglected addressing mental health issues, emotional health issues, and even spiritual yeah. issues, and even reconciling what the Bible says about different subjects, including justice and what this looks like. And that as you shared, as you as you taught many of us, uh, over 2000 verses about uh, justice and poverty. And yep. so it, it really comes down to what Jesus are you talking about? And I, I appreciate as you've walked us through this, what do you say as a pastor, as an Amazon best-selling author, um, you went viral on CNN, what do you say to your white colleagues that are afraid of losing power? To give black mm. people equity, there's a shift. And yep. so there will, there will be a shift. Um, I hope it is in our lifetime so I can see the results in my future kids and in your kids. But but what do you say to them that are afraid of losing their white privilege, even in their awareness of it? Um, Victor Blackwell, the anchor for CNN, asked me the same question, uh, at least close to that. And he said, you, know, you start talking about budgets, you start talking about assigning personnel, you start talking about board of directors shifting. Woo, how do you get by into that? And I said to him, well, to echo the words of Jesus, hopefully you can count the cost. Um, our, our, our white brothers and sisters have to count the cost. Many times they are silent on issues, the issue regarding systemic racism, police brutality, because they are afraid of offending their base. They are afraid of losing resources and seeing people who they know disagree and don't understand black equality. They're afraid of seeing them leave. So they remain silent. They got to count the cost. Um, number two, and 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 uh, there's a fantastic book called Evangelical Theologies of Liberation and Justice. Uh, it's written by it's a it's a collection of authors, and every chapter is different. But one chapter is on um, I believe it's called a born again theology, um, it, it, and essentially what it talks about is that G. Jesus calls us, and remember in John chapter 3, the, the dialogue with Nicodemus, he, he, he calls us and challenges us to be born again, to die to the way of living as we know. <laughs> and, and, and I think, and, and the, the chapter, the author in that chapter makes the case that, yes, we can talk about systemic racism and white supremacy, and we can quote stats, but let's not forget that it is a hard issue and that we do need fundamental transformation of the human heart. We need to be born again from the logics of white supremacy and how it's structured the very world we live in. We have got to be die to the way we have lived. And so I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it in regards to um, this, this uh, fight for the flourishing and the common good of, of black and brown people in this country. Uh, as you gotta be born again. I, I can quote stats and Dr. King and Malcolm X and all these different things, so I'm ruling the face, but un 
they, they, they have to, there has to be hard change for them to, for it to truly see. Now, that doesn't excuse me for not using my platform power and privilege to speak up and amplify black and brown voices, you know, to educate people. That doesn't excuse that. But we also have to take that into account that at the end of the day, the gospel is all about cosmic reconciliation. It's all about the kingdom of light pushing back against the kingdom of darkness. We've got to get a comprehensive picture of the gospel that 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 is all about the transformation of the human heart, but also the transformation of a society that seeks to diminish the image of God in image bearers. And so uh, I would say as well, we, we got to look at being born again, you know, because this is a whole different way. I've had a lot of white friends that have told me, um, man, you know, with all this race stuff, you know, I'm just, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. And I'm like, hmm, oh, you tired? Like, <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs> you know, but, but what, I'm, what, 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 what is, where does that come from? though? It, it, this, this is a marathon. This is a, this is a battle. You're going to have to be, you can't just dip your toe in and then come out. You're going to have to be born again and fundamentally see a different way of living. Uh, so, yeah. so to close this out, uh, Dr. Briscoe, what is one scripture? You mentioned there are over 2,000 scriptures on p- poverty and justice. What one stands out to you, um, one that you can leave our brothers and sisters in Christ with for them to go study and apply to their lives? Fantastic. Yeah, I already said Micah 6 days, so I want to use it. I'm like, ah, I can't use that. Can't use it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I would say, uh, I would say Matthew 25, I believe maybe 22 to 37, uh, that that passed. But it's essentially where Jesus said, um, when I was naked, you gave me clothes. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you offered me hospitality, opened up your home. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. I tell you the truth, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. The words of Jesus there in that passage is so beautiful, so powerful, and such a a reminder to care for, to be constantly cognizant of folks who are on the margins folks who have been oppressed. I'll give you another one, one more. I I would say, um, point to Exodus chapter three, where God confronts Moses and he says, I have surely seen their tears and heard their cries, the cries of my people, crying out as slaves in Egypt. I'm paraphrasing there. I have heard them and I am choosing to act. God is all about intervening. When it comes to standing on the side of the marginalized and the oppressed, God's position is very clear. It's not, he loves the rich, he loves the poor, he loves us all. But God is also very clear about corporate and communal sin and how we treat the least of these. So that's what I would leave. 
Dr. Briscoe, it has been a pleasure um, to have you on today's Chats with Chelsea, a special Father's Day edition. Also yeah. want to share with the Chats with Chelsea community that I am actually going to be doing a special book club reading Dr. Briscoe's book Ooh. in July. Yeah. So be sure if you're interested in joining a community as we read and have those discussions, you reach out and um, I'm sure we'll we'll pull the doctor back in for some pieces <laughs> of that book club to yeah. continue to have his voice in there. Dr. Briscoe, tell the Chats with Chelsea community where they can purchase your book and how they can stay in contact with you. Fantastic. You can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Briscoe. Uh, and then you can buy the book. You can purchase the book on Amazon. Just uh, uh, search, just type in there's a storm coming uh, and it will uh, it will come up and, and you can purchase it on paperback or Kindle ebook. Well, Dr. Briscoe, I am praying for you and Tracy. Thank you for your commitment to the fight. Thank you for um, being there on the front lines. I know that it's not always easy, but praying your strength and that God continues to give you wisdom and guidance. And just as he did four years ago when you started on this and now your words are so timely to a, to a community that needs the education. So thank you. Thank you for having me.